This is All the Cool Parts number 38. What's up, everybody? Welcome to All the Cool Parts, number 38. And I'd like to welcome my special guests on today's show, Percussion Ensemble, Clocks in Motion. What's up? Hello. Hi. Hi. It's great to uh, have you guys on the show. And you just released an album called Escape Velocity. Um, And we'll talk about that. Uh, Today on the show, we have Sean Cleave, Jennifer Hedstrom, James McKenzie, and Michael Kachevsky. Am I saying your name right, Michael? Pretty close. It's Kashevsky. Soft SH in there. Kashevsky. Okay. Welcome, guys. Um, we'll talk a little bit about Clocks in Motion. Uh, I don't know. Let's just start off by talking about how you guys became a group, how, how you decided to start Clocks in Motion, its inception, and um, yeah. Uh, great. Thanks. Thanks, Tony. Yeah. Um, Clocks in Motion began in 2011, but really the seeds of the group began before that. Uh, uh, we were all in school together at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and there was an infrastructure in the percussion program uh, for the graduate students to get together and play chamber music. It was just called the Graduate Percussion Group. And so a couple of us graduate students started playing together, and we realized uh, towards the end of our first year, this was in 2010, before Clocks in Motion formed, but in 2010 we realized at the end of the year that we were playing music pretty well together, and we wanted to continue. So uh, the next year, a couple of us organized, and we built uh, our first instrument together. We built a set of Sixen, uh, and it was a big process. It took uh, me and another group member pretty much an entire summer to build them to play uh, Xenakis' piece, Playad. Our so what's, what are Sixen? Can you describe what Sixen oh, yeah. are? So Sixen are... Um, a 19-pitch metallic instrument. We built them out of aluminum, uh, and it's a non-standard tuning. So it uses quarter tones and three-quarters tones, and really the percussionist is up to them to choose their own scale. But the trick is you have to make six different sets of these, and all six sets have to not be tuned the same way. Wow. So you end up still close. Yeah, close. They have to be within three-quarters tones of one another. So, So when the group is playing in unison on the same 
notes, you get this really crazy wash of overtones. And it was a huge process, you know, build these. We had to get a railroad cutting saw and cut, you know, enormous bars of aluminum channeling and drill them and put them on posts and, and uh, you know, figure out a way to mount these things. And it really, it was a big process. So after we built these and uh, performed the piece, uh, there were a couple kind of VIPs in the audience uh, who really loved the performance and they kind of suggested that we go on tour. So in 2011, we went on our first tour, and that's when we came up with our group name, Clocks in Motion. Um, so over the years, we've incorporated, and we've become a professional ensemble. And uh, now, actually, none of us are current students. We're actually an affiliate ensemble at UW-Madison. Um, and really, we owe a lot of this to our professor, uh, Anthony DeSanza, uh, who at UW-Madison really made this possible for us and was inspirational and kind of encouraging to make this all happen. So. Uh, yeah, I mean, from our own work and also from the uh, the support of the school, we were able to get to where we are today. So, yeah, and this is like uh, you know one of the big differences is between a percussion ensemble and other ensembles. You know, other ensembles might be using some you know some sandpaper on stuff or some rosin and stuff. You guys are using a railroad cutting <laughs> saw. Um, <laughs> where do you yeah. get a railroad cutting saw? Um, how did you get? Well, uh, one yeah. of our uh, previous group members who's not with us anymore, he actually, uh, his parents own this enormous workshop up in northern Wisconsin. And uh, I was working at that time at a summer musical theater program, and so pretty much on every break that I had, I went out to this workshop, and they just owned this old old saw. And we were able to find uh, blades at different hardware stores, like sandpapery kind of blades, so they cut uh, just like from heat, really. So, you know, the, it, like, melts the metal. Um, cutting aluminum is not so bad because uh, it doesn't conduct heat uh, that readily. So the, the most painful part of the process is cutting the steel rails that we use to suspend the bars because oh, they conduct heat like crazy. Yeah. And so it was like, uh, you know, I remember it was like a 98-degree day in the summer, and we were cutting these posts and just burning our hands for like eight hours. It was really, it was a very, that was a pretty fun one because we had to, we had to cut the posts and then we had to drill holes through them so we could suspend the six in. Sean, how many, how many keys did you cut that day? Because you selected the scale from a, an even greater number of, of six in keys, right? Yeah, so um, to select the scale, we, um, we first cut 27 bars. And uh, we started with uh, the shortest length that we could cut that would still sound quote-unquote decent. You know, it was sort of subjective. We cut like a small length of aluminum channel um, and we just kind of held it up and hit it with a mallet and said, well, that kind of sounds bad. So then we cut <laughs> a little bigger piece and once we got to the smallest size, then we just incrementally, I think it was like quarter inch or half inch, um, we just cut 27 even gradation bars. And from that, we selected our scale of 19 pitches. So there were eight extra pitches. Um, and so what, what's 19 times 6? That's how many total bars we ended up with, minus the, the eight extra that we didn't use. So oh, what wow. is that? Uh, 60 plus 50. So 114 bars, I guess, <laughs> is the total number of 6 in bars that are in the piece. So once we, once we selected our 19-pitch scale, then we used... Uh, incremental differences between each keyboard. So we have large sets of six in that, like, each bar is, like, a quarter inch longer than the normal set, and we have small sets of six in that each bar is a quarter inch smaller. 
And since the bars themselves are not finished, they're just like, you know, construction grade, they're metal, it's not really designed for musical instruments, even though like two, there's six sets and there's really only three different sizes, the sizes that are exactly the same still don't create the same pitches. So, you know, you really, you end up with three different blueprints for the way to make the six in, but you end up with six different sounds because the aluminum is not consistent in that way. Um, right. Right, right. And that brings me to something else I wanted to bring up about, uh, you know, about your ensemble and percussion ensembles in general is uh, the kind of the dedication that it, you know, it takes. I mean, the dedication it takes just to do what you just talked about and then logistics um, <laughs> of just simply, you know, I was up in Madison um, in, in uh, was it May? So I, was up uh, there. Maybe, I think it was April, actually. April? Are you talking about when you came out to our concert? Yeah, and at, um, um, I, yeah. I kind of helped you guys, you know, move your stuff, right, from like one <laughs> place to yeah. another place and then back to oh, the first place. Sorry about place. that. And uh, <laughs> it, well, it, it was, it's something that I I'm think... I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah, it's something that I think that every composer certainly should should experience. <laughs> and it's something, it was super interesting for me, and it was fascinating to see and it's something that i never want to do again (laughs) (laughs) and it just showed me you know these people do this every single time and you guys play a lot and uh yeah just it's it's sort of it's sort of par for the course for us i mean we've gone on tours where not only are we taking these six sets of six in but six timpani (laughs) dozens of drums yeah. keyboard instruments and we're unloading performing and then loading it all back into a trailer and basically playing Tetris with all this equipment in a trailer so yeah we're, we're very used to moving stuff that's just kind of the that's the gig when you're percussionist yeah. schlepping so to speak yeah it's a yeah, huge I mean, gig I mean uh, well I was gonna say oh. like you know if it were like say a string quartet that had a gig that day I mean they could have probably I'd say maybe three hours at most it would have taken out of their day to do that gig that you guys did. Mm-hmm. But for you guys, it becomes an all day. I'm talking all day into the you know late night affair. You know, mm-hmm. um, yeah. You know, when we're on tour, Tony, of course, usually when we're done packing up the truck, then we have to drive to the next location mm-hmm. that night. You know, so it's sometimes those, you know, we'll have three hours of setup plus a concert, then three hours of teardown and load-in, and then another three to six hours of driving to get to the next location. Um, I think there's a lot of that sort of in the music world where people say, well, you really have to love it to do it, but we really have to love it. Yes. (laughs) Because if you don't, if you you really don't love doing it, then moving all that stuff can be just an awful chore. But, you know, for us, I mean, even when it does get difficult at times, which it does, we like each other enough and we like doing and we love doing what we do enough that it makes it worth it in the long run, you know, because when we're done with that show, we say, oh, yeah, that was really, that was something special, you know. So our first tour, what Mike was saying, that's that's what our gear list was. I mean, we had those six sets of six in, which are no small task to move, plus, you know, what was it, 48 drums, six timpani, uh, and keyboard instruments. <laughs> so that way, we, we really, we rented a truck for that tour, and it was pretty exciting. Right. Well, not to mention, you know, you mentioned like that's the kind of the big stuff, but also you've got just, you know, countless little things that, 
you know, stands and little, little instruments that you hit and, and scrape and stuff. I mean, I mean, by the time it gets down to it, you have hundreds of pieces that you have to move and keep track of. And it's, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, I wanted to talk and we don't have to go on at length about this, but I wanted you guys to talk a little bit about, um, just uh, the history of the percussion ensemble. You know, we have this now this standalone percussion ensemble that has music written specifically for that ensemble. Um, when did this start? Like when was the first, you know, uh, ensemble like this that were uh, unto themselves? Um, well, it's interesting. I mean, I don't know if this exists in other instruments where you really know who the first group was. Who was the first, right. <laughs> what was the first string quartet, or what was the first, you know, but we really do know in our, in our group. And in fact, it's the first sentence of this group's bio, uh, Le Percussion de Strasbourg, the, the Strasbourg Six. Um, and they, the first sentence of their bio is the world's first percussion ensemble. And I mean, they're not talking about ancient musics of Africa and Asia. I mean, they're talking about the particular, you, you know, European-centric right, right. composed music. You know, of course, percussion existed long before what we do existed. Um, but, yeah, so their group was really the first, and they, they commissioned all the great kind of first European composers, like, uh, you know, they commissioned Zanakis and Manori and, uh, you know, uh, Donatoni and all those great, pieces that we have from our early repertoire from you know, the 50s and 60s. But before that group came to be, there were composers in the United States that were writing for percussion ensemble. Just percussionists wouldn't play it. So in those days, you know, John Cage and Lou Harrison and, um, and Henry Cowell, they were writing pieces, oh, and of course Edgar Varese, they were writing pieces uh, that were played by pianists and were played by dancers. But they were written for percussion instruments because that's what they had. So um, these are fantastic pieces, some of which that we still play today. I mean, every year we, we program some John Cage, some Henry Cowell, and they become uh, kind of staples of our own repertoire. So uh, we're talking about the early 20th century. I mean, 1920s. Uh, you know, uh, John Cage's uh, first construction in metal was written in 1939. Um, and at that time, he was a student of uh, Schoenberg. And Schoenberg obviously had very little interest in writing for percussion because he was interested in a uh, dodecaphonic system, you know, so he wanted pitch. So when uh, John Cage came to him with this piece that was all full of noise uh, metal instruments of indefinite pitch, he said, well, I'm not interested in this at all. Huh. And that created, that created a real uh, divide in what was happening in that music. And uh, we really owe it to them, the experimentalists of the early 20th century, for everything that we have today. Because now uh, you hear a lot of percussion music that is... Uh, indeed, definite pitch, you know, with like marimbas and vibraphones and everything else that we have. But that early music was really, it was the noise aspect that was interesting to me. So um, that's kind of a real bang up version of it. But, you know, then in the United States, uh, there were university percussion ensembles that started popping up. They started playing the music of Michael Colgrass. And, um, you know, so it kind of, there's a lineage there. Um, and now our group, our group is part of this sort of second or second and a half, third generation group of percussionists. Um, you know, my teachers are older. My teachers were older than the oldest piece of solo percussion music. Huh. Wow. Interesting. Um, yeah. 
you know, so I studied privately with Steve Schick, and he's a solo percussionist. He plays and commissions all these new great pieces for solo percussionists, and he was born before the first multi-percussion solo was written. Wow, that's crazy. So it's really a new a new thing what we're yeah. doing, and uh, you know we owe it to some other groups that we've modeled ourselves after. I mean, I was a you know an undergraduate percussionist when so percussion became big, and uh, they were a huge inspiration to me as a young percussionist because it showed me that there was another outlet besides just playing orchestral music, which is great. I mean, I love playing orchestral music and I still play orchestral music today, but there was another way to create art. With this, uh, with these instruments. Awesome, um, yeah, uh, that's that's amazing um, to think of how utterly new this uh, this medium is. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, let's. I don't know. Let's let's get into your album. You just released an album called Escape Velocity, and it. it I mean, it just it was just released right like a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And um, where can this album, where can we get this album? Uh, well, James designs our website. James, do you want to, we have it up on the website. So. Yeah, absolutely. We've got, you know, downloads. We have physical CDs, but uh, really just through our website, there's plenty of links to find how to get the album, and it's available on the, all the major uh, digital download sites, iTunes and whatnot. We have our Bandcamp page that you can go to. We have our store on our website, so anywhere. Awesome. And the, the website is clocksinmotionpercussion.com. So you can Great. go there, and, and we have it in our store if you want a hard copy, and we'll mail you a hard copy. Otherwise, uh, if you want just the MP3s, you can download. Cool. And, uh, yeah, let's get into it. Let's get into the music. Um, we're going to start with this piece of Mark Mellet's called Gravity. And, uh, you know, I was reading the introduction in the liner notes of your CD about how is the you know escape velocity and how that relates to the philosophy you're putting into the album this piece did you choose this piece because it because you liked it or did you choose it because it um because you liked it and it had something to do with that philosophy kind of because Mellitz talks about how you know he his idea behind this piece was a gravitational pull sort of between pitches and was that part of the reason you chose this piece? Um, well, there's. I think there's a lot of uh, things that need answered need to be answered in that statement because the album title was the very, I think, last thing that mm-hmm. came into okay. play here. Um, that was like we were already in the post production when we were like, we need an album title. So, so that was sort <laughs> of a, a a last thing. The music. The entire album was chosen, uh, the album repertoire was chosen uh, as a group uh, based on, we really wanted to do some repertoire. We wanted to do some pieces that we didn't commission ourselves. So that's where, that's where the Herbert Brune, which we'll talk about later, of course, and the Charles Warren piece comes from. But the Mellitz piece was one of our commissions. And we wanted to have an album that was pretty much even between commissions and repertoire pieces. Um, so we commissioned Gravity as part of a consortium of about 13 other groups, um, and it's a piece that we've been performing a lot. So it really made sense for us to record it. And uh, as you hear more of the musical examples on the CD, Gravity is a bit of an outlier. I mean, it's 
It's all pitched. Um, it's all pitched percussion. It's pretty much tonal. I mean, it's uh, and uh, it's really lush and harmonic, harmonically written. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it showed a different kind of side of what music we do. You know, the the album yeah. wasn't quite so one-sided in that way. Well, it's now, also the, very pulse-driven, which a lot of the other music is not. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's that, that um, you know, as with most of Meltz's music, it's uh, it's really kind of groovy. And it's, I don't know, it's a really attractive piece. So, I mean, we love it. We love playing it. We love performing it. We wouldn't have put it on the CD if we didn't love it. And that's true of all the pieces yeah. on, the, on the CD. Yeah. You know, so, uh, now the Escape Velocity title, uh, Gravity, Gravity made it easier for us to, I think, make that decision to title the album that way. But also, Escape Velocity also relates to the title of our group, Clocks in Motion, which has a scientific uh, genesis itself. You know, um, uh, Clocks in Motion is based on the the experiment that Einstein used theoretically to prove the theory of relativity, which is that if you put two clocks, uh, if you put one stationary clock on Earth and you put one clock in a high-speed jet, uh, and that orbits the Earth several times, the uh, time will slow down for the faster-moving clock. Right, right. And so when they when they land, they're back together, they'll be out of sync with one another. And we thought that was a really cool idea when we were coming up with our group name because of the Zanakis pieces and the Steve Reich pieces that we're playing, that there's all this music where the rhythms are sort of out of phase with one another. <laughs> and so, so Escape Velocity ended up being a title that we thought we could expand on and make multiple albums that have different sort of scientific meanings. Escape velocity, of course, being the velocity that is needed to escape the orbit of a planet. Uh, uh, or the orbit of any sort of large celestial body. You know, yeah, the, yeah, whatever yeah. velocity is needed to escape that. So uh, we thought that was a neat idea as a departure for our first album to say, okay, here we are, here's what we're doing, and uh, Gravity is the first piece in the album seemed to make sense. Yeah. Awesome. Um, Mellitz is interesting. I mean, he he's kind of becoming one of the most performed American composers uh, alive today. He's he's really getting a lot of play these days. <laughs> um, if you want to see a, just for the audience, if you want to see a a really cool interview with him, um, our sister show Sound Notion just interviewed him on uh, their episode one seventy one. That's pretty interesting to watch. Uh, yeah, anybody else have any uh, comments about uh, Mark Mellet's piece? <laughs> I guess not. I mean, we did we did work with Mellets. I mean, he came oh, to Madison did. before our first performance, and uh, he heard us play the piece, and he was extremely enthusiastic. I mean, he's a really nice guy. You know, it was very yeah. easy to work with him, uh, and... It was funny, at the time I'd asked him sort of where the title came from, and he kind of shrugged his shoulders and said, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Which is really funny, because I think there, I think his explanation of the gravitational pull of notes, I think you can really hear that in the music. And we were were searching for some sort of a program element, uh, like we felt like the music felt like we were flying or floating or some sort of a a mental image to portray what the music kind of sounded like to us. And uh, it was fun. That that discussion was quite nice. And then we got to go out to dinner with him, and he came to the premiere performance. Nice, so, nice. Um, that's nice. And he was involved with the recording process too. We would send him clips that we had, and he would have comments for us and and ideas. Um, 
and the piece really is our own. I mean, we we interpret it. You know, we interpret it. Yeah. Uh, some of the things that we do are outside of the score, and I I'm really excited to hear what other percussion groups end up doing with the piece when they end up playing it because it is getting played a lot. It's being played in Europe and the United States, and I know that uh, Temple University just recorded it. I don't think the recording is released yet. I think our recording is the first. I think we have a world premiere recording of Gravity. So. Um, but I'm excited to hear what other groups do with the piece. Nice, nice. So let's hear this piece. Uh, this piece that was uh, just composed last year in 2013 uh, by Mark Mellitz. This is Gravity. just heard Mark Mellet's Gravity and we're going to move on to our next excerpt At Loose Ends composed in 1974 by Herbert Brune um, born in 1918 died in 2000 uh, I did a little bit of research on Herbert Brune this is the first piece that that I've heard uh, by Herbert Brune um, he taught at the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana for a long time um, he was kind of a pioneer of computer music back in the day. And, uh, yeah. Um, what do you guys think of this piece? Well, I love it. Um, I wish Dave was here because Dave was kind of the one who discovered Herbert Brune. Um, but I think this is such a wacky piece of music, um, full of like, I don't know, every imaginable sound 
and I always think of uh, almost like a cartoon sometimes when we're playing it. And so I've I've found it to be just a phenomenal piece to play and something that I've loved coming back to again and again. Yeah. And um, Jennifer Jennifer is the pianist in our group, which is really exciting. It's something that we have in Clocks of Motion that I think a lot of other percussion ensembles don't have, like a permanent piano member in the group. Right, right. And there are there are some uh, great great pieces of repertoire, uh, including the first percussion ensemble piece, uh, Ionization by Varese, that uses piano as a percussion instrument. And so Jennifer has a big job in At Loose Ends. Uh, did you want to talk a little bit about the piano part, Jennifer? Oh, sure. Um, I mean, of course, uh, it uses the keys traditionally, but also I have some moments where I play inside the piano, I pluck some strings, um, I'm also called on to do uh, uh, some more percussive things because I play the chimes as well, and I'm also playing celeste in the piece, so I'm kind of hopping around between three different instruments, and on top of that, um, the piano part really uses the whole instrument, like I'm jumping from the bottom octave to the top octave back and forth, and so it's... a uh, Something that I really enjoy is whenever a composer really chooses to use every part of the instrument. And so it's um, certainly challenging, but also uh, really great fun. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that he, um, well, the the sort of description that you guys have in the, the CD liner notes is just, is more of a sort of, of a poem. Yeah. And uh, it's kind of interesting that the, his description is really open to interpretation, just kind of like the music is, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, but the last stanza says, uh, um, ends proposing itself as another piece composed for all mentioned above and a pianist so that strings be attached to the loose ends just at where they are. So um, it even mentions in here in the poem that, you know, there's all these sounds going on and there's a pianist. Yeah. And, and the piano is really plays a central role to this piece. You know, even though it's a percussion ensemble piece. Yeah. 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 Um, the the excerpt that we're going to play is, uh, I hear it. Now, you guys, of course, have a way deeper understanding of the music than I do. But um, I hear it as sort of a, this sort of virtuosic duet between the piano and the marimba. Or is it a corimba? I can't it tell. It is the corimba. It is corimba. Mm-hmm. Um, and then with some other sounds going on. Um, mm-hmm. What are the... So we've got piano, we've got corimba, which is uh, basically two marimbas that are sort of stacked on top of each other that are tuned a quarter tone apart. Is that right? Yeah, yep. exactly. Mm-hmm. And then what are the what are the other instruments that we're hearing here? You're hearing... Um, I'm playing uh, 16... Or is it 18? 16 or 18, I can't remember. <laughs> uh, tune, tune cowbells, omglocken. And uh, Mike... You and Joe, well, Joe, who's not here, but Mike and Joe are playing, uh, what is it, 12 wooden boxes? 12. Well, yeah, uh, we each have three wooden boxes with two kind of planks cut into them each, so six total pitches each mm-hmm. and wooden boxes, yeah. Yeah, and, and that that's kind of a cool sound. I remember the, our audio engineer, when he was listening to it when we were mixing this this section, which was a very careful mix job, but when we were mixing this section... He said, he said that the wooden boxes to him sounded like the clacking of bones, like like some weird <laughs> skeleton dance. And I thought that was really cool, because this piece kind of lends itself to those images. So um, 
Yeah, you'll hear the marimba switches back and forth between the marimba and the corimba. I listened to this excerpt earlier. And uh, you'll hear, almost towards the end of the excerpt, you'll hear the marimba and the corimba being played together. You'll hear kind of the wacky, wide, and weirdly narrow intervals that are created from that. Right. Awesome. Let's check this out. This uh, very interesting, very uh, virtuosic uh, excerpt from... Herbert Bruns at Loose Ends. heard at loose ends by herbert brune and we're going to move on to excerpt number three duplum by filippo santoro uh written in 2012 i couldn't find a birth date on filippo i think he's pretty young right uh yeah i don't actually know what year he was born do any of you <laughs> <laughs> no uh um he's under 40 that's all no, <laughs> right. No, I don't he's think he's in his 40s. He's in his Is 40s. he really? Oh, he doesn't, yeah. he doesn't look. He's yeah. very healthy. <laughs> he's healthy. <laughs> that, that Italian health. <laughs> all, all, all that olive oil, right? No. He yeah. Well, he runs, he runs yeah. a lot every yeah. day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. So he's, he's, he's Filippo Santoro in his 40s, runs a lot. Um, <laughs> yeah. Just go up in his entry on Grove Online or something. Exactly. <laughs> um, so this piece, uh, this this excerpt, I'm not sure um, we can talk about all the instruments used. This particular excerpt that we're going to hear, 
um, is primarily, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong here, guys, <laughs> is primarily two vibes and then it goes into two xylophones. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. It's a very fast transition. <laughs> yes. Uh, Almost. Yeah. It's so fast that if you're really, if you are not completely focused on it, you'll find yourself thinking like, whoa, wait, when did it change to xylophone? <laughs> like I totally missed that. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, so this piece, this piece was a bit of an experiment for me. Uh, I commissioned Filippo to write a piece for stacked keyboard instruments for a duo. And uh, Dave and I play it. Dave is not here, so I'll kind of do most of the talking for this one, I guess. Uh, the vibraphones and xylophones is where we started. And then Filippo said, hey, can we add glockenspiel too? And then my head kind of started to spin because I thought, well, now we have to navigate three different mallet keyboard instruments. Right. You'll, you'll not hear the glockenspiel in this excerpt, but it's a big part of the piece. Um, and so there were moments all over the piece that we didn't really know if it was possible or not. And we had to kind of learn it as we went, and there were a lot of edits that happened. But in this particular transition, in order to make it work in live performance, we have to actually have a mallet sitting on the xylophone. And the very end of the vibraphone section, we have to switch to playing one-handed and simultaneously set down a vibraphone mallet while you pick up the xylophone mallet where it is on the keyboard and strike the first note. And uh, it requires quite a bit of one-handed playing in the xylophone section while you pick up the other mallet. So there's, there's this uh, transition that also in a live performance, if you blink, you'll miss it. Right. Uh, and in the audio recording, it's completely seamless. So uh, we, were, we had to kind of navigate that in order to make it sound the way that Filippo wanted it to sound. Uh, and we were able to make it work, but at first I had to look at it and say, well, Filippo, we can't really do this without it without a rest, but then we were able to figure out a way to make it right. work. So. And that, that brings up another uh, interesting uh, aspect of percussion music and percussion ensemble is the fact that you guys um, have to really choreograph a lot of physical movement to make pieces possible. Like I said, you know, getting from one thing to the next thing, a lot of times composer will, will just write you know, now, you know, here you're on this instrument, then you're on this, then you're on this. And the, a lot of times they don't take into account, you know, what it takes to get to that instrument or get from this instrument to this one and set everything up and all that stuff. So you really have to do a lot of choreography, too, of, you know. Yeah, certainly. Um, yeah. You know, when we play Duplum, we need three different stick trays. And we put them in different locations in the setup, uh, including a stand to hold uh, our bows because you need to make a fast transition to bass bows. Um, and those are all strategically placed exactly where we need them, so we can get to the transitions as fast as possible. Um, and that's true with everything. I mean, that's true with all these pieces. Mm -hmm. We have everything kind of set up just right so we can get to every place that we need to get to. So, uh, yeah, Duplum is no exception. And it is quite rewarding to work with composers and to describe what is needed. You know, Filippo took... Uh, aerial photographs of our setups in Duplum. Uh, while he was composing it, he would look at those photographs and actually imagine how f how you could get from that instrument to that instrument in that amount of time. Oh, that's a great to, idea. Uh, yeah, to the point where once I came to him and I said, well, this is impossible. And I pointed to a part and I circled it and I said, this is impossible, I can't play this. He said, well, what if you sticked it this way? Like He had already figured out on his own a sticking that would work. That I just didn't that I just didn't think of, and that's the sign of a really great collaboration, I think, because yeah. I learned something 
about my own instrument setup that I wouldn't have learned otherwise. Right. That I was just ready to toss it out and say, I can't do this. He said, well, no, you can do this. What about that? And, and I tried it, and it worked. Uh, so that's really valuable. You know, it's not just about composers learning about what we're doing. It's about us learning to do things that are way outside of our expectations of what's possible on the instrument. So yeah, I think something I, special about what we get to play is that this shows up in many, many pieces that we'll ever see. Something that immediately at first blush you say, I can't do this. It's impossible. And living with it enough to find a way to do it or find some approximation of it, and that's part of the fun. Yeah. And I think unless, it, unless it's notes that literally go off the keyboard. <laughs> which happens in Tanaka's. That's something you yeah <laughs> running yeah. into and being like, Yeah, I can't do that because it actually is impossible. Then you're supposed to just whistle <laughs> those notes. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> what do you mean, Mike? You don't have a seven octave xylophone? Uh, I'm work I'm working up the, the finances, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um Awesome. Uh, any anything uh, any of you want to say about Duplin before I play it? Anything else? We good? I don't know. I I just think that Duplin is is the piece that on this album that most that most does that thing where it's like, how possible is this really? Mm-hmm. How can we do it? And it was it was asking that question and figuring out uh, how to execute it. And the piece is really hard. It's really difficult and but incredibly worth it, you know, because the the language of the music and the way it fits together is really attractive. So it's another one of those pieces that I I hope to hear other professionals play in the future. You know, that I hope yeah. to hear other professionals take on. Cool. Let's check this out. Uh, this is Duplum by Filippo Santoro. And we just heard Duplum, and we're going to move on to our fourth excerpt, All Hallows by John Jeffrey Gibbons, uh, written in uh, 2012 and 2013. And uh, this is a, a really interesting piece. It's a piece that's conceived on a kind of a grand scale for percussion ensemble. Um, I, you know, I remember, uh, Sean, you telling me how you kind of... Uh, 
discovered Gibbons. And I, yeah. I just wanted if you could maybe recount that story because I thought it was pretty interesting. Well, uh, Jeff Gibbons, is a, he's an incredible composer and an unbelievably uh, dedicated and just brilliant mind. You know, just... And he started coming to our concerts in the very early years. Like, he started coming to Clocks in Motion concerts. And uh, I had a conversation with him one day and told him that we were going to perform the Herbert Brune piece at Loose Ends. And this is before Jeff and I really knew each other that well. I was just telling him that we were doing that. We were building a quarter to a marimba. And I didn't think that anybody knew who Brune was. I didn't think that anybody knew about the quarter to a marimba. And Jeff is like, oh, yeah, I know that piece. And it turns out that he was a student of Herbert Bruns back in the day. And, uh, and so when he heard we were building this instrument, he just decided then and there, he didn't really ask me, he just decided, well, I'm going to write you a piece for that instrument. And <laughs> this was this and Duplum, All Hallows and Duplum, were our first two commissions as a group. So, um, so when he decided to write this, he wrote The Prelude first, which he wrote in 2012, which is a trio for Corimba, Vibraphone, and seven tuned gongs uh, with a fourth player, an assistant that James does, and James should talk about this a little bit, uh, what he's doing in this piece. But it ended up being a trio. Uh, I think it's about six and a half minutes long. Uh, with the plan, he planned on expanding it into a larger piece. Uh, and that's what you have now. The other two movements, Witness and Nocturne, are the second and third movements of the piece, which he finished in 2013, and we uh, premiered this last December. So right after the premiere, we went to the recording studio and recorded the piece, and that's what we have now. So uh, when he wrote the second and third movements, he expanded the instrumentation to an additional gong player, and the gong players are also doubling on another instrument that we produced that has the same tuning as the corimba, but they're steel pipes, and we call that the galvatone. And so there's 88 total quarter-tone steel pipes played by two different players and the addition of a pianist. So the piece uh, turns from a trio to a trio with an assistant, to a quintet uh, in movements two and three. And it's really a powerful piece. And his use of quarter tones is totally unlike that of what Brune does in right. At Loose Ends. Right. We really wanted to pair them together on the recording to show, well, here's two different uh, generations of composers uh, uh, working with similar material and how different it is. Uh, so since uh, Owl Howls, I've actually played Jeff's marimba solo, which he wrote in 1987. Uh, and he's actually written lots of music. He wrote a snare drum solo for the um, for the Noble Snare Book, and then he's written countless uh, piano pieces for uh, microtonal piano, where uh, he has a technician retune the piano into microtones. And uh, it's really fascinating and uh, really heady music. But but once you kind of dig in and you hear what's behind it, it's amazing stuff. Right, so right. Uh, I'd like James certainly to talk about his role in the prelude, and Jennifer has a big role in the, uh, in the second and third movements. I think she's the primary instrument, actually, in the second movement with the piano part there. So, uh. Yeah, I have a, a fun little role myself in the prelude. The, I, I came into the piece after it had been written, so I'm not really sure how it was conceived that this would work. However, the gong player playing seven tune gongs, these gongs just hang, and they ring for a very long time. Um, but I think Jeff was thinking he'd be able, the player would be able to sort of mute them as they go, you know, as if they were in a gamelon or something like that. And um, it just gets too fast to where you can't do that in any way. So um, 
I became the gong muter. And in order to do that, people tried various various methods for that. But my my instruments of choice were two ski hats. So I get to have my back to the audience and go through muting gongs with my 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 King's X hat and my Whaler's hat, and it's a lot of fun. But so people remark on it quite a bit. But it, it it's with necessary. A, I'm sorry. What beat. was the first hat? King's X. It's a very King's my favorite, X. One of my favorite rock bands. Yeah. Wow, I love King's X. I've never met anybody that knew who, even knew who they were. <laughs> well, Tony, I, I think uh, all our friendship will only continue. To <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, you have a King's X ski cap. Okay, um, yeah. <laughs> go on. Anyhow, yeah, so I, um, it, it's necessary to the piece for that, uh, for the gong sound to get shaped in any way besides just a huge amount of noise from the gongs. Um, so any clarity that comes out of it is because we found a way to, to get that done. Right. So, I mean, you're, you were sort of added into the piece after the fact. Um, I don't know, as a sort of sonic controller. I don't know, like, what... Yeah. To, yeah. It's a pretty unique role, and uh, uh, but it's, it's really a lot of fun. We get to do... It's just like... Um, any mallet dampening on a vibraphone, where you're, you know, you strike one note with one mallet, and then as you're moving to the next note, you you damp damp the note with uh, the other mallet, and I'm I'm doing that. So I'm following Joe as he's going through, and it kind of looks like this. I don't even know. I guess I can't say what it looks like since I'm doing it, but uh, <laughs> I think it's pretty fun. It looks pretty incredible, actually. You know, the the prelude was premiered. What was it like a year before the other two movements? Yeah. And so About I was able I was able to experience the prelude from the audience, and it it has this really unique visual quality because the person playing the gongs is moving, and then it's almost as if James is like pantomiming them, and and the the whole piece is like sort of um, you know the title All Hallows like lends itself to this idea of like a ritual and some sort of like ceremony and so it almost looks like that when you're watching it it's this weird strain it's like you're peeking into this other world you know awesome there if you're interested in seeing the gong movement with the dampener we do have a video of the prelude up on youtube on our on the clocks in motion youtube channel i think there it's clocks in motion perk is that what it is our youtube handle yeah uh, but if you search for it, uh, you can see it, and especially in that first movement in the prelude, just to watch kind of what's happening there. And you can see also the geography of the way the corimba works. I'm really traveling quite a bit of distance while I'm playing that instrument. Uh, but yeah, and then things shift gears. I mean, things get a lot heavier, I think, in Witness. The addition of the piano is a huge change right. in the sound mm. of the music. You know, It really does sound like uh, a much more intense... <laughs> Kind of piece, I think, than the prelude. Right. Uh, well, you know, I think yeah. he is sort of. I don't know. It's almost like he is sort of creating these alternate universes or something with these pieces. Mm -hmm. You know, they are very deep. I know he's he thinks very deeply about them. I mean, you can you can see that clearly. Um, you guys have an interview up with him on your YouTube channel. Yes, uh, we do. Which, which I watched, and if you watch that, you can you can see that he clearly thinks about you know everything very very deeply 
Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, you know, you know, I I'm glad James that you brought up the word gamelon because I was kind of wondering. You know, it's clear that the uh, or pretty clear um, that where Brune is coming from with the quarter tones is I don't think really from the gamelon tradition, but from just what it the sounds in this piece, it kind of sounds more like the quarter tones in this piece are, are sort of coming from the gamelong tradition. I don't know if that's right or if they, or if he intended that, but that's kind of what it sounds like. What do you guys think? I think Jeff would be thrilled to hear you say that, to be honest. I mean, I really think that he would, he would find that to be like the best form of flattery for what he wrote. I mean, he, he, um, he loves gamelon and he talks about it all the time. And when he was writing for the, Gong player initially, he imagined that he played one handed damped with the other, which right. is in the gamelon tradition all the time. And the quarter tones, I want to say they, you know, they fit more in all house than they do in the brune piece. In the brune piece, the quarter tones is sort of like an on-off switch. It's like it's like a ga- he describes brune d- describes his quarter tones as like a ghastly echo, where you hear the marimba play something and then you hear the quarter tone marimba echo it, uh-huh. sort of off kilter. Uh, but in Jeff's piece, he just throws all the quarter tones in there, and they work because you can hear how they relate to that fundamental pitch that's being played in the gamelan. Right. That's being played in the gong. Yeah. I think you hear that throughout gamelan music, because the slowest moving lines are the lowest pitches. And the fastest moving lines are the, are the, are the highest pitches, and they all kind of fit together in this, in this stacked configuration. And I think you hear that certainly in the prelude. Yeah. Where the gongs are moving slowly, and all these quarter tones and all this stuff in the vibraphone and the marimba kind of float over top of it. Um, yeah, polyphony, really. Right, right, right. And uh, just for the the audience, the audience's sake, um, could one of you um, just briefly describe what gamelon is, just so we're not just throwing out terms that people are like, "What gamelon? What?" <laughs> uh, does anybody else want to take this one? Well, the gamelan, the gamelan music is the uh, East. It's the Indonesian tradition, right? Yeah. Indonesian music, and um, it's primarily metal instruments. So they have these enormous gongs, they're like signal players. And it's rhythmically derived. You know, there's scales. There's scales that are outside of the Western tradition. So we think of them as quarter tones and microtones, but they just think of them as that's their scale. So um, it's incredibly precise. And there are different forms of gamelan music that all use different scales. And there's a history of instrument builders across the world that make these instruments. Uh, we actually do have a set of gamelan instruments at UW-Madison. And they're really they're great. And we've been lucky enough to be able to use them at times. But uh, we have to be careful with how we use them because the pitches are really specific and you have to use a certain kind of mallet and the stands are really unwieldy to move. But the instruments themselves are absolutely beautiful. You know, so what you're hearing in this are sort of modern... Uh, European-derived gamelan make-believe instruments. They're not the gamelan <laughs> gongs, right. but they kind of sound like that. Yeah. And uh, there's a... It reminds you of that, of that same kind of sound. So, uh, but, yeah, I mean, a YouTube search of gamelan, it's G-A-M-E-L-A-N, uh, and you'll hear some amazing sounds and, and a music that is very different from our Western tradition. And the the instruments themselves amongst the ensembles are not uh, exact. So a gamelan for a specific ensemble will not fit into as an inter- interchangeable instrument with another one. 
Um, but Java, Bali, both have very different styles, uh, but it's really fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, the one, I forget which one is which, but one of them is much more patient, much more slower moving, yeah, and the other one fun. is much more frenetic and much really intense and a lot of unison, really, really fast passages and hockety, and so uh, they're both fascinating, uh, and it's definitely worth checking out. Definitely, definitely. Um, okay, let's check this out. Um, this uh, this this uh, really kind of um, hauntingly beautiful piece, um, the prelude to All Hallows by John Jeffrey Gibbons. <laughs> just heard All Hallows, the, the uh, prelude by John Jeffrey Gibbons, and we're going to move on to excerpt five, uh, the first movement of Percussion Quartet, written by Charles Warrenin. This piece was written in 1994. Uh, Charles Warrenin, um, born 1938, uh, came up in the 50s and 60s and uh, was a big kind of serialist guy. Um, I think he has been almost through his entire creative output i i don't know where he stands on that right now in 2014 i'm not sure but um uh yeah you know this piece this this excerpt that we're going to hear uh from the the first movement um the thing that immediately struck me about it even though there's a lot of stuff going on um was the the very intricate and very quiet uh timpani work in this um, who's playing the timpani in this part? Yeah, everybody. <laughs> yeah, all of them. <laughs> all, everybody. Uh, yeah, so the instrumental setups in the percussion quartet, everybody has one of everything. So uh, every player has a mallet keyboard instrument. 
Every player has one timpano. Every player has some sort of metal instrument, uh, like uh, either cymbals or gongs, or, or in, in my case, I have some crotales, um, uh, omglocken. Uh, everybody has drums, so I have bongos, and then there are tom-toms, and there are more tom-toms, and there are bass drums. So we have to navigate all these instruments in these tight, compact, multi-percussion setups, where we all have about eight or nine different instruments to, to get around. Wow. Uh, so what you're hearing when you hear that timpani section is this intricate, hocketed uh, timpani passage where it's traded amongst all the players. Well, it's done. Wow. It's really done. <laughs> I mean, kudos to you guys. It's really done super seamlessly. It sounds like one person doing it. Thank you. Um, Thank you. Is this, a, is this piece like a... a what would be considered sort of a standard for percussion ensemble or how did you come across this piece? Well, I, it was my idea to bring this piece to the group. So, uh, we've been performing this for a couple of years now and actually our plan is to memorize it for our next season and go on tour. But the, um, the percussion quartet, I first heard it, uh, in 2008, uh, or was it 2007, 2007 or 2008 when I was a student at Manhattan school of music. The Juilliard, the Juilliard Percussion Ensemble played it uh, on a concert that I played on as well. We did the Warren and Percussion Symphony, which is an incredible piece for 22 players. So I played on the symphony, and the Juilliard Quartet played the, um, the Percussion Quartet by Warren. In, and I had no idea what I just heard back then. But it, left an imp it really left an imprint on me, and I wanted to play the piece. So I brought up doing it. I've been a longtime Warren fan. I played his percussion solo, uh, Janissary Music, which is one of the first percussion solos ever written. Um, and it is serial. It is a 12-tone work. Pretty much everything that Warren writes is 12-tone. Uh, there might be some exceptions. I know there are some uh, short things he's written that, that uh, you know, model themselves off of more ancient musical styles, but his music changed greatly in the 1970s. You know, so before the 1970s, he was really writing, uh, using a lot of systems that Milton, Milton Babbitt used in his music, uh, but his music gets a lot more classical, I think, from 1970 on, where you can listen to this music and not know anything about the theory behind it and find something to kind of latch onto with the way the rhythms uh, fit together and the way the, the groove kind of right, works. Right. Uh, and there are landmark pitches where you land and you say, oh yeah, now we're home again. Then we leave. You know, kind of in the way that classical music works, where there are home bases where you, you land and you say, okay, yeah, there's the rondo theme. I recognize that. Now we're going to go and do some sort of episode, but we're going to come back. And we know we're going to come back. So I think the Warren and Quartet does that very well. You know, uh, if you listen to it a few times, you'll hear motives that are instantly recognizable to come back again and again and again and again. Um, and on different instruments, too. Kind of in the way that Beethoven or Mozart would trans, you know, transpose a, a motive or reorchestrate something a little bit differently. You know, so the, the recapitulation is a little different from the exposition. And you hear that all throughout Warren's music. And that's what I think makes it so accessible. Right, right. Um, yeah, we're going to hear two excerpts from this. So let's just go ahead and check out the first one. Um, this is from Charles Warnin's Percussion Quartet, The First Movement.
And we just heard the first movement of Warren's Percussion Quartet. We're going to move on to an excerpt from the second movement. Um, and uh, this particular movement, uh, this is like the sort of finale, you know, the finale into the very end of the piece. Yeah. And uh, very virtuosic, um, especially between the, I think it's marimba and glockenspiel. Is that right? Uh, probably Cortales is what you're hearing. Cortales, kind of okay. Like a, yeah, kind of, yeah, kind of sounds like a glockenspiel, but Cortales. Yeah, a little more shrill. And then, um, yeah, and then there's some really intense drumming too, especially like the way, the, the thing that I like about the drumming a lot is it's it's all really intense, but it's sort of this uh, quiet, controlled intensity, you know, until you get to the very end. Yeah, um, it gets pretty unbridled there at the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah. What, what do you guys think of this one? I think um, one thing that I that that is happening between myself and and Joe playing the marimba is we have these these different licks that just keep coming up, and uh, we're together, we're interacting a little bit, and then as that movement comes on, they sort of end very similarly or together with with what seemed something very disparate before, and then finally, as it culminates then we have this big unison lick between everybody. So that's something that sort of builds throughout. And then, like you said, at the end, to me, it has always just been, it just becomes kind of unchained, unrestrained, and has a really excellent finish. Yeah, I mean, I, I really love this piece. I think, it's, I think it's incredible, and it's worth it, all the work that you put into it, but I don't think it has been played a lot. I mean, you would ask me that earlier, you know, how many groups play it. Uh, I, as far as I know... This recording that we're releasing is only the second recordings that have been made of it. The New Jersey Percussion Group recorded it, I think the year it was written, in 1994, 1995. Huh. Um, so other than that, we're the only other group that has recorded it, and I, and I think we're the only group that's really touring with it. I think it does get played occasionally in California, maybe in New York, some people play it, but uh, we've really put a lot of time and, and energy into putting this piece together. We, we plan on continuing to play it. Um, but yeah, the the end of this piece is just really ferocious and oh, yeah. and just a blast to play. You know, it's it's like a race to the end. It just keeps getting faster and faster and faster and louder too. You know, faster yeah. and louder. Yeah. So that means it's better. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Does uh has Warren heard this? Yeah. You're recording. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What? I mean, we didn't get a chance to work with Warren, of course. You know, New York City is pretty far away from Wisconsin, but I am really looking forward to the day that we get to play it for him. I mean, I'd really like to do that. But, you know, I've been in touch with his manager, uh, Howard Stoker, and he sent me a, a quite a bit of feedback on the recording. As far as I know, they're really happy with it. They have a hard copy now. They have the digital download. Mm-hmm. And, um, and they're really great. They're really great people and very supportive, and they're happy to have the music played. And uh, I'm glad that I had a chance to meet Warren in, back in 2008 when I played the Percussion Symphony because it, it made me feel like I could approach him again. You know, maybe feel like I could approach him again and say, we're, we're, we're putting together this project, will you support us, will you help us with it? And the answer has always been yes. So, you know, the, the, I think we live in a really special uh, time with composers that, uh, you know, performers that, that commission, it's just such a positive experience. And, you know, although we didn't commission this piece, uh, it feels good to know that the composer knows about it and knows that we're playing right. it. Right. Uh, despite that, you know. Yeah, yeah. That, that's that must be such a difference between uh, your ensemble and other 
classical ensembles, you know, where they're playing the vast majority of what they're playing are by dead people. And, you know, the vast majority of what you're playing are by people who are, are living and are working and, you know, yeah. uh, and you can interact with those people. And yeah, it's a, it must be such a difference. It, exactly. I mean, it was, it's what really makes it worth it for me. You know, that's, that's why I love playing new music. Uh, to feel like we're still discovering new things about this, uh, about this art form that we're doing. I mean, yeah, it's just that's it. That's the big thing. Yeah. Awesome. Let's uh, let's check this out. Um, the end of Charles Wernin's percussion quartet. We just heard movement two of uh, Charles Warren's percussion quartet. And before we go, I wanted to ask one question uh, to Jennifer um, because you are, you know, you're the, the uh, aspect, I guess, of this uh, group that uh, Sean said earlier, I think Sean said it, that you know, most percussion ensembles don't have a piano, a dedicated piano. They might play a piece here and there, where they might bring a pianist in or something. But um, you know, from a pianist standpoint, how is it playing with a percussion ensemble? Is it different than you know playing with other ensembles that a pianist would normally play with, or what's your, within your experience? Um, it's it is definitely very different. Um. I, of course, piano. I come from a background where where much of my repertoire is is the standard repertoire, um, baroque, classical, romantic, and sometimes a little twentieth century. But anything um, from from sort of my my musical upbringing, anything you know past that has never been really something to discuss. Um, and so, 
I started becoming really interested in playing in playing music by living composers when I, I played a piece um, uh, that one of my friends wrote in undergrad, a really fine composer named Daniel Fisher, and I found the process of working with a living composer so satisfying that I just knew I needed to do more of this. Um, so when I came to Madison, um, it was really with the idea that I was really set out to find some people, and I feel very fortunate to have found this group of people who have that similar passion. And I think, um, naturally, I mean, there are other other musicians out there who perform who perform new works, um, but I, I think percussionists are much more readily doing that than perhaps other instruments because their art is so new. And so I found it um, sort of a very easy instant connection um, with all of the musicians in this group because of that and because of those goals that we shared. Um, also, it's just really awesome to work with percussionists because I like working with people who have great time and great rhythm. <laughs> <laughs> um, that That's pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, um, what's... Uh, What's coming up for Clocks in Motion? What's next for you guys? Oh boy! Well, there's a lot. There's a lot coming up. Our next season, we haven't we haven't announced the next season yet, so I don't want to spill the beans on too many things. But I think that uh, what is really exciting. I don't have a date yet, but we are doing. Um, we want a grant to to put together a Steve Reich concert, uh, in which we're going to do the complete drumming. And we're going to do uh, sextet and some other great pieces over the course of a weekend uh, nice. in the o in the Overture Center uh, here in Madison, which is just a great venue. And uh, you know we're commissioning. I think the list is up to twelve new pieces for this next year. We have our annual call for scores deadline, which is coming up in September on September first, and we're expecting. Uh, we've already had quite a few submissions, and we're looking forward to getting more. Uh, and tour repertoire, including the music of John Cage, we're going to be. Um, touring as well with the percussion quartet that's on our CD uh, this year and many other just kind of great pieces. Uh, looking to throw a little Zappa onto nice. the uh, program nice. for this next year as well as Verez. We still have not performed ionization and it looks like this year is going to be our first time to do that. Um, and well, Tony, we're playing your piece in September. We should probably mention that, right? <laughs> we're, well, we're, sure. premiering, uh, we're premiering your electric guitar concerto, Automaton. Uh, in in September, so that's going to be a blast too. Uh, but that's just a little bit of the kind of upcoming things for for our group, and uh, just kind of looking forward to getting the CD in people's hands over the course of this next year. Yeah. So yeah, awesome. Well, um, thank you very much, guys, for coming on. It was awesome to have you guys on. And um, I've wanted to do, you know, a show and all the cool parts on percussion for a long, long time. And I never really found the right recording or the right fit. So I'm, I'm really glad I could finally do it with this album and uh, with you guys. So, yeah, thanks for coming on. Thanks Thank for you. having us, Tony. All right. Um, that is going to do it, everybody, for all the cool parts number 38. If you'd like to check out Clocks in Motion, and please do, uh, you can go to their website, uh, clocksinmotionpercussion.com is that right? That's right. Yep. And you can also go to their uh, YouTube channel where you can watch them do all this stuff. I'd highly recommend that you do that. 
Um, the YouTube channel is once again it's Clocks in Motion Perk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, is that right, James? I think it's Clocks in Motion Perk. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> Clocks in Motion. If you go to our website, there's a nice little tab on the top where you can you can just go directly to our YouTube page. From the That's right. As well. That's right. Or you know. If we get anything wrong, just go to Google, type in Clocks in Motion. There you go. You <laughs> yeah. will show up. Um, yeah. They have them, uh, they're going to have here anywhere uh, in the Madison area or anywhere close. Um, please go to their website and look at their schedule for their season. Go see them perform. It is uh, definitely worth going to that. Uh, if you'd like to send us an email here at All the Cool Parts, you can do so at sending an email to allthecoolparts at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at, at Anthony Landman, and you can go to our website at soundnotion.tv slash ACP. And that is going to do it for this edition of All the Cool Parts. See everybody next time. Later. Later.